our fight is not over. This Supreme Court opinion for Dobbs, it's kind of like Pilate washing his hands, right? And saying, give it back to the people you decide, right? And what is mob justice, right? It's no justice at all. That's not democracy. Mm -hmm. And so what one of the important things that Lincoln teaches us, right? You've heard of popular sovereignty in the 1850s, right? Each state will decide for itself whether to allow slavery or not, right? That's kind of the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah. Lincoln taught us that a, Democrat, a democratic majority's legitimacy and authority is derived from nothing other than the equal natural rights of the persons who, con, uh, who constitute that majority. So a majority can't justly and rightly deny those basic fundamental human rights to those in the minority. That's a, that's a, te a teaching from Lincoln. And so I think we have to understand going forward that we have to fight in the states, yes, we have to fight at the federal level, uh, but it's not enough to say that this is a democratic choice issue. We can't be Stephen Douglas in 1850 saying popular sovereignty is the way to go. And so I think one way to push on this is through this 14th Amendment approach. Obviously, long term, it would be great and perhaps necessary to have a constitutional amendment. And I think that a human life amendment, and I think that that's really important, but that's a long term goal that we have to work toward. And one of the intermediate steps to getting there is to ensuring equal protection under the 14th Amendment that we already have. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have an emergency episode. I think our very first one that we've ever done. Um, you know, I, I, there have been certain news events that have happened uh, over the last year or so where we pointedly avoid talking about it as much as humanly possible. This is not one of those. We have decided we are going to lean in and do an emergency episode with someone we've been wanting to have on for a long time. And thankfully, the episode is functionally the same as we would have it, even if uh, it wasn't in the aftermath of Dobbs. We had on Josh Craddock today. He is awesome. You probably follow him on Twitter. Uh, Josh is is the person that I look to as North Star on the pro-life issue. He's the one on the cutting edge of what needs to be done. <coughs> and he is Bless you. also just a really <laughs> fun guy. <laughs> My back is wet now. That was disgusting Jesus. okay <laughs> um as you can see we're we're jazzed up um josh is an affiliated scholar with the james wilson institute on natural rights and the american founding he gradu graduated magna cum laude from the harvard law school where he served as editor-in-chief of the harvard journal of law and public policy he later clerked for the honorable chief judge timkovich timothy m tinkovich timothy m Timkovich We're doing of the U.S. Job. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Prior to law school, Josh managed advocacy teams for nonprofit organizations at the United Nations and participated in negotiations for the Sustainable Development Goals. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Newsweek, National Review, First Things, Public Discourse, The Stream, Providence Magazine, and Post-Liberal Order. His academic writing has been published in various law reviews and research journals. He has spoken on hundreds of public platforms, including for many civ civic and charitable organizations, and now American Moment as well. We had such a great episode with him. I know that we seem pretty scrambled. It is in sharp contrast to how put together Josh is. Um, I think the amount of information he communicated in about 55 minutes would take most of our guests an hour and 40 <laughs> to communicate. It was very clear that he is a, a lawyer man through and through. He gets sharp, crisp sentences. Uh, if he didn't, you know, judges would kick you out um, uh, on, on your butt uh, from their chambers. So it was a fantastic episode. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. So we're just going to go straight now to Josh Craddock. Josh, thank you for coming on the podcast. So glad to be here. This is, I think, one of the first like emergency we need, you know, get me Josh Craddock type of uh, podcast we've done. Obviously, the, the whole world has, has changed, it feels like, in just a few days since the Dobbs decision came down. But as always, what's your background? How'd you get here? And then we'll dive into um all of the all the juicy details. Sure. Well, I'm a fifth generation native Coloradan. Uh, grew up out there. Was homeschooled all the way through high school. Uh, went to the King's College in New York City, where I studied politics, philosophy, and economics. And while I was out there, I started working as an intern, actually, at the United Nations for a non-governmental organization doing lobbying on pro-life and pro-family issues. And that produced into a full-time job. When I graduated, I got to work on some of the negotiations for the sustainable development goals. I uh, went to the 2015 Summit of the Americas doing pro-life advocacy there. 
And uh, after that experience, I realized I was interested in law and what shapes society. And so I attended Harvard Law School, uh, where I was the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. And since then, I clerked on the Tenth Circuit after that for a wonderful judge, uh, Tim Timkovich, uh, out in Denver, Colorado. And uh, now I practice law in my day job. And your extracurricular activities have have continued well into your your professional career. Uh, you have affiliations with a couple different institutions. Walk us through yeah. all of those. Yeah, yeah. I'm an affiliated scholar with the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. Um, and so. You are, I think, one of the most interesting people talking about the life issue, especially in the legal profession today, because you do not necessarily abide by the Overton window. Most of the professional legal right would like to. And we're going to get to all of your your various heresies in that front. But let's start with just the basics. What just happened on Friday? What was the Dobbs decision? What was ruled? Tell us the story. Well, the Dobbs decision is the most significant Supreme Court decision of any of our lifetimes, and it's the most sup- significant Supreme Court decision of this century. Uh, it overruled the 50-year-old precedent of Roe v. Wade and the 30-year-old precedent of Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Both of those cases required states to allow abortion pretty much all through nine months of pregnancy based on the broad health exception that was passed in a companion case to Roe called Dovey Bolton. Uh, They required states to allow abortion, uh, and they allowed states only to regulate around the edges of the abortion issue, uh, but not if it would cause an undue burden on women seeking abortion. And so that was the law for the last 50 years from the Supreme Court. They ruled that the 14th Amendment required states to allow abortion, and Dobbs overturned that. So Dobbs said, no, there is no constitutional right to abortion found in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And so states can decide up or down whether they want to allow abortion. So that's like kind of the bottom line of what Dobbs decided. And for those who are not constitutional scholars like myself, uh, which uh, what is the 14th Amendment? Sure. So the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868, and it was in response to the Civil War. So some of the operative text that's important is... He just pulled out his pocket. I, you know, I had I had to pull it's it out at some point, Institute right? One, I, uh, <laughs> can we edit that out? Know your audience. <laughs> um, so the 14th Amendment says that uh, no state shall uh, deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And so Roe and Casey seized on that word liberty, right? No state shall deprive the liberty of any person without due process, and said that that liberty protected lots of rights, including the right to abortion, even though there's nothing in the history or text, right, that would lead one to believe that abortion is protected. Got it. So what was the specific law that Mississippi passed that led to this um, Supreme Court case and, and what was what was specific about it? Why was this the case that pro-life advocates said, yeah. all right, that's the one that we've got to shoot up to the top? Well, so the case was from Mississippi. Uh, the Mississippi law banned most abortions after 15 weeks gestation. And so that gestational age is earlier than viability right now. The viability line uh, changes actually based on like the technology that we have to be able to keep babies alive after if, you know, preemies who are born before they're due. Um, So the Gestational Age Act banned most abortions after 15 weeks. And the reason why it was ruled unconstitutional by the lower courts is because Casey and Planned Parenthood had Casey versus Planned Parenthood had established a viability line where states couldn't regulate abortion prior to viability. And so that was a direct challenge to Roe and Casey. And when it went up to the Supreme Court, it was obvious that either one or the other had to go, either the Mississippi law or Roe and Casey. Justice Roberts didn't see it that way in a very unpersuasive concurrence in the judgment. Uh, He argued that he thought that the viability line wasn't central to Casey's holding. And so he thought that we could somehow uphold the Mississippi law uh, while also upholding Roe and Casey. And for a lot of reasons that uh, Sharif Gerges, a professor at Notre Dame Law School, has explained, uh, there's just no way to do that. It's it's entirely unpersuasive. So what are the practical implications of this ruling? I, I we we've seen a lot of people, I think, you know, freaking out, saying that abortion is now illegal in all 50 states. We know that's not true. There are also people uh, absolutely thrilled thinking, you know, it's banned in all 50 states. Um, so. Walk us through like what the practical implications in the last 48 or 
72 hours, I guess, yeah. since the ruling came what, what, down. What was the actual ruling? Did yeah. It hold? yeah, so the holding was there's no constitutional right to abortion. And by implication, now the states will decide for themselves their legislative policy on abortion. So um, several states have trigger laws. Uh, they revert back to their pre-Roe v. Wade laws or implement new pro-life laws that have been passed uh, in the in years previous that only take effect when Roe is overturned. And so there's about a dozen states that have those laws that have prohibited abortion in all or most cases now. Uh, while in other states, it's undecided. And then there's about a handful of states, including, unfortunately, my home state of Colorado, other states like New York and California that have said that they they have a uh, either a constitutional right to abortion or it's legislatively imposed that there's you know practically no limits on abortion in those states. Mm. So walk us through the Alito opinion, because it was it was definitely it felt like bolder on the bolder end of the range of possibilities that could have come out of the court. Obviously, we, we had gotten a preview of it when it was leaked a couple of weeks ago. Did we get the same opinion? Were there changes to it? And then what were what were the main holdings, the so, takeaways? Yeah, the final majority opinion from Justice Alito was actually remarkably similar to the leaked opinion that we saw. The main changes were actually added responses and rebuttals of Justice Roberts' concurrence and the dissent. And so those were the main changes that we saw from the draft. I think there's two important things to pull out of this majority opinion. Uh, the first was it was really interesting to see its emphasis on history and specifically the common law and statutory history of states that prohibited abortion uh, prior to Roe v. Wade and at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted. So encountering Roe and Casey's uh, decision that liberty protected in the 14th Amendment guarantees abortion, uh, Justice Alito went back to the history and said, well, that can't be possible because at the time the 14th Amendment and that liberty was introduced into our Constitution, in three quarters of the states, abortion was completely prohibited at all stages of pregnancy. So it can't possibly have been a constitutional guarantee in 1868. I think that's the first important thing. The second important thing from the Dobbs opinion that I think is a takeaway is five times the majority opinion looked and said that abortion is, quote, critically different from any other right that this court has recognized and held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty because it destroys what Roe and Casey called fetal life and what the Mississippi law called unborn an unborn human being. So five times the majority opinion rested its distinction from other substantive due process cases, other cases involving like the right to contraception, you know, these other, you know, greatest hits of substantive due process. It said those those cases are different because this this case, it takes an unborn human life. And that's pretty incredible. And I think it leads it has a lot of implications going down the road. So one of the interesting things I've seen in this opinion um, and that I've seen a lot of people talking about is its links to other um, cases kind of in the social sphere, specifically Obergefell. Mm -hmm. Walk us through how those are related and what the possible implications for future rulings could be. Sure. Yeah. So Griswold, the contraception case I mentioned a minute ago, uh, Lawrence v. Texas, Obergefell, which was the same sex marriage case. All of these are a strand of doctrine called substantive due process, where the court had said has said that that due process clause in the 14th Amendment has a substantive component that guarantees certain fundamental rights. And so that's, the, you know, the dissent says that this decision is going to call all of those cases into question because they all rest on the same doctrinal framework as Roe and Casey did, the mm -hmm. substantive due process component of the due process clause. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not sure that that's correct. I think that it does expose a chink in the armor of substantive due process. But like I said, several times, five times, the majority opinion distinguished those other cases from the abortion context because abortion takes a human life. And so I think that that uh, is, you know, could have implications for those other cases down the road. But I think that it's telling that the majority opinion focused so much on what makes this case so different. What was the dissent like? What was the arguments that the, the, just, the three liberal justices promulgated? Was there any tenability to them? Was it just Wah, wah, we didn't get what we want. Like, what, 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 tell us about that a little bit. I think the dissent was most notable for what it didn't say. It didn't try to say that abortion was deeply rooted in this nation's history and traditions, which is the legal test uh, for these substantive due process cases. It didn't even try to do that. 
it was making policy arguments and basically trying to throw red meat uh, to kind of the progressive base. Uh, and I think that it was interesting and in that it was profoundly unoriginalist and that it wasn't trying to look to their nation's history and traditions, wasn't trying to refute the statutory history. It was just trying to make policy arguments and say, well, the people who ratified the 14th Amendment were all male and stuff like that, <laughs> uh, which, which is just, I, I find very unpersuasive. It's not how we should be doing constitutional law. Are you a congressional office with interns this summer or an intern yourself looking to learn more about the America First agenda? Then you need to participate in AM Fridays, a brand new program by American Moment designed to teach young staff in D.C. the basics of what it means to be America First. Over the course of the summer for 10 weeks, American Moment has rented out the top floor of the Monocle Restaurant in Washington, D.C., and we'll be bringing in speakers from across the conservative movement to talk about issues from immigration to trade to foreign policy to innovation to how to support the family and much more. If you'd like your interns to participate in this program, email info at AmericanMoment.org with the subject line AM Fridays, and we'll be sure to add them to the list. So there were two other components to this beyond just the majority and the dissent. It was Roberts's concurrence and Thomas's concurrence. Uh, what was Justice Roberts bellyaching about? Why was he unhappy? Yeah, so there was Roberts, Thomas, and Kavanaugh each oh, Kavanaugh's, had opinions. Yeah. Uh, Roberts uh, basically he he thought that viability wasn't central to Casey, and so he thought that we could both uphold the law and uphold Roe and Casey, and so that's why it was a six-three judgment because. Roberts joined the other five on the court in saying that the law should be upheld, but he did not join them in the part that said we should overrule Roe and Casey. So mm -hmm. it was 6-3 to uphold the law, mm -hmm. but only 5-4 to overturn Roe and Casey. Mm -hmm. uh, Justice Thomas focused a lot on the substantive due process strain of cases and called those into question. He has long been on the record that the entire notion of substantive due process is uh, nonsensical. And so he thinks that that entire line of cases should be revisited. And then I think Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, uh, his concurring opinion was also interesting uh, because his view was that the Constitution is scrupul scrupulously neutral on the question of abortion. Doesn't say anything one way or the other on abortion. And he actually chose to go out of his way to opine on several things that weren't before the court about whether states could prosecute people who travel over state lines to obtain abortions or whether the constitution itself affirmatively protects life. And so it was interesting that he went out of his way to opine on those things that weren't before the court uh, without really any substantive like evidence to back up those intuitions that he had in the opinion. What, what where did he come down on, on the, the state lines and and the affirmative protection of he life. thought he thought that there was no affirmative protection for life and that uh it would be unconstitutional for states to prohibit travel to obtain a, an abortion interesting and so does the kavanaugh concurrence end up diluting the majority opinion at all or only the roberts opinion does i don't think so uh, i think that the best way to read the dobbs opinion is for its full-throated endorsement, for, for its focus on the history, for how it looked at that history of what was rooted in our nation's history and tradition, and how it interpreted, the, how it looked at the state laws and the state practice concerning abortion when the 14th Amendment was adopted. And I think that the best way to read it is also in, with those five times that the majority opinion recognized the difference between abortion and other types of cases because of its interest in human life. So I don't think that the, I think the Kavanaugh opinion is not the best gloss to read the majority opinion. Uh, no one else joined Kavanaugh's concurrence, and yet he joined the Justice Alito's opinion in full. So I think Justice Alito, the best way to read Justice Alito's opinion is with that in mind. And of the range of possibilities, reasonable possibilities with this court, you know, from one to 10, one being the weakest, 10 being the strongest, where would you say this opinion ends up falling in the range of possibilities we could have gotten? I think this is really strong. It's it's really an excellent opinion. Uh, I don't think it's the best opinion we could have gotten, but I think it's really strong. So wh why do I say that? I think that the best opinion we could have gotten would have situated in the 14th Amendment an actual equal protection guarantee for unborn children uh, that would protect the right to life nationwide. Now, of course, that, that question wasn't presented uh, by the parties. So usually the court doesn't pass on questions that aren't presented. Uh, it wasn't in the QP, you know, the question presented in the, in the briefs when they petitioned for certiorari. Um, so there are reasons why the court didn't reach that issue. Uh, but it was presented by several amicus briefs to the court, including from Oxford philosopher and legal historian John Finnis mm -hmm. and Robert George, 
uh, professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University. And Finnis and George wrote an excellent amicus brief arguing that the 14th Amendment affirmatively protects the unborn and that the court should have reached that issue. And so I think that would have been the best opinion that we could have gotten. But I think this is, you know, realistically for the court that we have, this is pretty much mm -hmm. one of the best opinions we could have received. And so go ahead. I was just going to say, would that have changed um, the outcome of like returning that issue to the states if it had been, you know, ruled as unconstitutional on the basis of that being a human life also entitled to liberty? Yeah, I think it would have changed the outcome. So instead of uh, having the states decide whether to allow abortion or not, uh, it would have required states to ensure equal protection for all persons in their jurisdiction, including unborn persons. Mm -hmm. And so that would include, you know, making sure that generally applicable homicide laws apply. So this is uh, the next topic that I'd like to get to. It's it's how we originally became familiar with your work was uh, the argument that you've put forward uh, along with many others. Though I would I would say that you're more responsible for popularizing it than anyone else. Um, that it is not only the case that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, but that abortion is um, per se unconstitutional. What's the argument? Yeah. So this really, if you want to dive into it, I uh, definitely recommend reading uh, the Finnis and George amicus brief that I talked about. But I also wrote an article for the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy uh, called Protecting Prenatal Persons. And it outlines this argument that based on the original meaning of the 14th Amendment and its guarantee of equal protection for any person, that person when in 1868, when the amendment was ratified, that the word person included all members of the human family, including specifically unborn members of the human family. And so that's kind of the argument that I've put out there. And it's a little bit different from kind of the main, you know, uh, institutional legal conservative view that you might be familiar with. Uh, Justice Scalia, for example, said that the Constitution only protects, quote, walking around persons. Uh, where where that is in the Constitution, I'm not sure. Uh, but that's that was his view. Uh, not, you know, none of his opinions dove into the history or, you know, he's known as an originalist, but he didn't dive into the original meaning of that word uh, or of the 14th Amendment with respect to abortion. Uh, but Justice Kavanaugh seems to share the same intuition in his concurrence. And so that's, I think, kind of the institutional view. And that's the view that I've challenged. And so what what is it? What are the contentions that you make that these people would push back on? Like, what are the specific historical examples that would lead you to believe that that that's the case. Yeah. So I think there's three lines of evidence that support my argument. So first, if you think about the plain meaning in 1868, and you can ascertain that plain meaning through uh, dictionaries of common and legal usage. So for example, uh, Noah Webster's Dictionary of the English Language published in 1864 uh, defines person as any human being, a man, woman, or child. Uh, Alexander Burrell's dictionary, uh, law dictionary, new law dictionary published in the 1860s, uh, defines person as a, a human being as distinguished from a thing. So there's in, in common parlance, uh, the term person included all like human being. It was interchangeable with biological humanity. So there wasn't any distinction between, you know, a human being and a person. The second line of evidence is a little bit more nuanced, and it goes back to the common law and the state practice concerning abortion prior to the 14th Amendment. So going way back to like the 13th century, uh, abortion had, had at all times been prohibited at common law. And the rule was that there was no distinction between biological human life and legal personhood. So, for example, Blackstone says, quote, life is a right inherent by nature in every individual, and it begins in contemplation of law as soon as an infant is able to stir in the mother's womb. And so that mention of the preborn child stirring in the mother's womb wasn't designed to exclude human beings before that. It was actually to protect human life as soon as it could be detected, right? Because that stirring was the first discernible uh, evidence of life in the, in the woman's body, right? And so the principle of the common law was always that where life could be shown to exist, personhood existed also. And so the, the, the Finnish George brief is a really excellent treatment of this common law history. And so I encourage you guys to look at that. But then it was also interesting that that quickening distinction, the quickening being the, the first perceived fetal movement or the first time the child is able to move, there's a little bit of ambiguity in the case law. Uh, that quickening distinction was ap actually rapidly discarded in response to new medical information as biologists began to learn about the science of fertilization and human biology in the 1830s, uh, the common law actually adapted to that and responded. 
And at the same time, there was a statutory movement where states began to strengthen or codify their anti-abortion laws. So instead of just prohibiting abortion at common law, they also passed state statutes to prohibit abortion. And so by the time the 14th Amendment was adopted, three quarters of states prohibited abortion at all stages of pregnancy, no quickening distinction by the time the 14th Amendment was adopted. And most of those statutes were classified as offenses against the person, and many of them used specifically language like child, infant, and human. Mm -hmm. So it was very clear that there was an interchangeability between the unborn human being and a legal person. Was there any punitive aspect to these laws at the time? I mean, practically speaking, what was it like to live in states where where those laws were on the books? Yeah. Well, even going back to the 1600s in the colonies, uh, there were indictments for abortion prior to quickening. Uh, we have examples of that. Uh, typically, there was punishments always for the abortionist or the person who prescribed uh, abortion pills or abortion medicines. Uh, and then it depended on the state, depending you know what, what the state laws were, whether uh, women who themselves procured abortions would be prosecuted. So about, well, I think it was a little less than half the states uh, prosecuted anybody who committed abortion. Uh, and then the other half of the states, some of them chose not to prosecute women who procured abortion. And that was for a few different reasons. Uh, the first being that uh, there was sort of a paternalistic view that women weren't culpable for their own actions, that they had been taken advantage of by abortionists. And so that was sort of the paternalistic view that might have motivated the policy. But then there was also a second rationale, and that was that the mo person most likely to testify against the abortionist was the woman herself. And so in exchange for testimony against the abortionist, uh, there was either a legislative immunity or a case-by-case -case prosecutorial immunity uh, toward the woman to get her to prosecute, uh, the, to get her to testify against the abortionist. Kind of the rationale being, you know, we want to go after the kingpin who's responsible for more abortions and actually go after that person and put that person behind bars, uh, prosecute them. And, you know, we were willing to give this immunity in exchange. Yeah. What, a, what was the procedure of abortion like in the 1600s? I mean, today, obviously it's, it's medical and there's all sorts of technology that's used. It's barbaric, but I'm just curious, like, what, what was that at yeah. the time? It's always been barbaric, but uh, a lot of times it was abortion, uh, you know, herbal remedies. Uh, there was, you know, rudimentary attempts, uh, you know, with, with uh, in, you know, instruments to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the laws prohibited both uh, medicines, you know, medication abortions, as we would now call them, um, or instruments uh, to, of abortion being used. And so both of those were prohibited by these statutes. There's a really interesting phenomenon um, that I've wondered about for a long time, and that's the difference um, between the way the law looks at, uh, you know, the death of a child that was wanted versus one that was unwanted. Mm. So, you know, if someone walks into a grocery store and uh, shoots, you know, an expecting mother, someone who's 20 weeks along um, versus someone who gets an abortion at 20 weeks along. Those are kind of two different legal perspectives. What is kind of the historical view been on both of those different cases? Yeah, well, I think it wasn't really until you began to see the abortion reform movement, which was the pro-abortion movement in the mid 1900s, uh, that you began to see this like subjective view of like when the child, you know, when it's wanted, it's a it's a baby, but when it's not wanted, it's just a, cl a clump of tissue or something like that. Mm. Um, when you go back to the common law, it's actually interesting because uh, unborn children were able to inherit under a will, even if they hadn't been born yet. Mm. Uh, they actually could have a guardian ad litem represent them in court if their if their interests were adverse to those of their parents. Like as you could imagine, like right in a in an inheritance situation, right, the parent might get more if the child doesn't, and so their interests might be adverse. And the unborn child was actually entitled to separate legal representation of wow. the unborn child's interests in that sort of a situation, and so. There's a long legal history of this at the common law, and you know the, it was treated you know as a person. Um, so I think that that's that's a really persuasive line of evidence. The last kind of line of evidence that I want to touch on is the you know in 1868 when this amendment was passed, what was the original intent of the people who drafted it, right? And we all you know the the standard originalist line is that the original intent intent doesn't directly govern the meaning of the text, but it's indicative of what you know well-educated, informed people would have thought at the time. And what they said was they intended it to 
apply very broadly, right? The specific issue being addressed was uh, uh, extrajudicial killings and violence against blacks in the South, right? After in the in the post-Civil War South, where the KKK was killing people indiscriminately, uh, lynching was occurring. The, the specific goal, right, was to ensure the equal protection of the laws for black Americans in the South. But the framers and drafters of the amendment didn't say, Black Americans are entitled to equal protection of the laws. They actually went further and more expansive. They said any person, right, any person is entitled to the equal protection of the laws because they wanted to make sure that nothing like that would ever happen to another disfavored group in the future. So, for example, Jacob Howard, one of the senators who was really influential in, in passing the 14th Amendment, said that even the lowest and, quote, most despised of the human race were guaranteed equal protection. Uh, another representative, uh, James Brown, he simply put it, does the term person carry with it anything further than a simple allusion to the existence of the individual? So they clearly intended this to sweep more broadly than just the specific issue that they were addressing then. And they wanted it to be comprehensive so that every human being within the jurisdiction of the United States and covered under that constitutional umbrella would be entitled to equal protection. Um, comparatively speaking, the arc of American <clears throat> jurisprudence and the legal status of abortion, how does it compare to Europe, continental Europe, and maybe even parts of the developing world? What does what, what that crescendo look yeah. like? Well, some of the people rioting after the Dobbs decision uh, and vacationing in Greece like might be surprised to learn that Greece and most European countries have actually far more restrictive abortion laws yeah. than the United States. N Noah Smith, one of the most interminably irritating neoliberals on the internet, he, he tweeted <laughs> out yesterday, he, he was like, wow, I didn't realize that most European countries are more restrictive on this than Mississippi. And it's like, man, like if you don't know that at this point, yeah. you, you have you are committing malpractice commenting in the public square. Well, and before you continue too, which and I'm sure that you that you know this, but I, I want our listeners to know which other countries are as permissive with their abortion laws as ours. There's only a handful. It's China, Vietnam, North Korea. And Canada, I think there's one or two others, but that's that's the company we're in. I actually saw someone post something saying, I can't believe that North Korea and China have more uh, support for reproductive rights than America does. <laughs> and I was like, man, wait till wow. you find out what they do in China, yeah. <laughs> right? Like that's that's bad legal takes worthy. <laughs> it was it was up there. It was yeah. so bad. Uh, but yeah, most people are surprised to learn that there's only a handful of other countries in the world that are as that had a a system of abortion that allowed it so late in pregnancy as the United States under Roe and Casey. Mm -hmm. And now it's still going to happen that late, but it's only going to happen in states like California, uh, New York, Colorado, where mm -hmm. one of the one of the four late term abortionists doing third trimester abortions lives in Boulder, Colorado, just about an hour from where I live. Um, they are going to continue to do this even after Dobbs. And so our fight is not over. This Supreme Court opinion for Dobbs, it's kind of like Pilot washing his hands, right, and saying, give it back to the people you decide, right? And what is mob justice? Right. It's no justice at all. That's not democracy. Mm -hmm. And so what one of the important things that Lincoln teaches us, right? You've heard of popular sovereignty in the 1850s, right? Each state will decide for itself whether to allow slavery or not. Right. That's kind of the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah. And so, what Link? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so you so you bring up the slavery point, and I think that's a good one. Um, so, you know, set the scene for us. What what is what is this whole state's rights thing look like over the coming years? I mean, yeah. I think a common theme that a lot of people are picking up on is that this is a very fundamental way of life issue. Um, and to have so many states going in so many different directions is probably, I would say, pretty bad for the country. So what is what do you think that looks like moving forward the next five, 10 years? It looks a lot like the 1850s. Uh, prior to the Civil War, uh, slave states in the South uh, had laws, you know, uh, relating to the Fugitive Slave Act. They tried to pass, you know, legislation and also uh, litigate to make sure that when slave owners traveled into free states, that they would retain property in their slaves. Right. Uh, at the same time, the northern free states were also trying to thwart the fugitive slave laws. The ways that they did that were numerous. But, for example, in their choice of law rules, kind of a mundane issue of law that uh, you decide whether to apply your state's law or another state's law that has a nexus to the dispute, uh, they would actually 
modify their choice of law rules so that the free state's choice of law rules would apply rather than the slave state's choice of law rules. Same thing happened in the South. I think a lot of that is going to be happening today as some states are going to continue to allow abortion, as we've discussed, others are going to prohibit it. And so you're going to have these questions about, you know, travel across state lines to obtain abortion or paying companies paying uh, their employees to travel for abortion. Uh, those sorts of things, I think there's going to be a lot of legislation around. And I think that there's going to be, you know, very similar uh, issues with respect to how the states get along with one another. Taking this analogy further, uh, a couple months ago, maybe a year ago at this point, you published along with uh, uh, Catherine, um, is it Glenn Foster? Yeah, Catherine Glenn Foster and uh, Dr. Chad Pecknold um, uh, with, with Americans United for Life, a great organization, um, something called the Lincoln Proposal. What is the Lincoln Proposal and um, how does it need to be updated in light of the decision last week? Yeah. So the 14th Amendment argument that I've outlined, I think it has applicability at all levels of government. Right. So states have an obligation to ensure that equal protection is secured within their states. But then each branch of the federal government has a role to play, too. So the Lincoln proposal is a proposal for pro-life presidents to basically enact it or issue an executive order recognizing the unborn as persons under the 14th Amendment and ensuring that that view is mainstreamed throughout all the agencies and departments of the executive branch. So that would mean like FDA, HHS, uh, Homeland Security, all those departments and agencies uh, would be following the president's direction under Article 2, gives the the, the vests the executive power in the president, and the, it says that he has to take care to ensure that the law is faithfully executed. That take care obligation first entails that the, the president has to know what the law is. And again, Lincoln didn't just defer to what the Supreme Court said the law was, uh, in Dred Scott, right? He issued passports and patents to black Americans, recognizing them as citizens of the United States when Dred Scott had said that that's unconstitutional. Uh, he exercised independent constitutional judgment to do that. And so I think a pro-life president is actually in a better situation to implement something like the Lincoln proposal uh, today than they were before Dobbs. Because although the president had that authority, that independent authority to interpret the Constitution contrary to Roe and Casey, it's a lot easier when those precedents don't exist. And so he can take it a step further than Dobbs to ensure that equal protection is mainstreamed throughout the executive branch. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there's you know a lot more work to be done now that we've just kind of turned it over to the states. Um, what does the future of the pro-life movement look like in the coming years? Yeah. Well, I think that we have to recognize first that abortion is not it's not a matter for democracy. Right. Lincoln taught us that a Democrat, a Democratic majority's legitimacy and authority is derived from nothing other than the equal natural rights of the persons who con uh, who constitute that majority. So a majority can't justly and rightly deny those basic fundamental human rights to those in the minority. That's a that's a, te a teaching from Lincoln. And so I think we have to understand going forward that we have to fight in the states. Yes, we have to fight at the federal level, uh, but it's not enough to say that this is a democratic choice issue. We can't be Stephen Douglas in 1850 saying popular sovereignty is the way to go. And so I think one way to push on this is through this 14th Amendment approach. Obviously, long term, it would be great and perhaps necessary to have a constitutional amendment. And I think that a human life amendment. And I think that that's really important, but that's a long term goal that we have to work toward. And one of the intermediate steps to getting there is to ensuring equal protection under the 14th Amendment that we already have. And so we talked a little bit about what the president can do. Uh, the states have an obligation to do this, uh, the judiciary when cases come before it. But I think also Congress has an obligation to act. Uh, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment vests in Congress the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the guarantees in Section 1 that we've talked about, uh, due process and equal protection. So Congress actually today could pass a federal abortion ban prohibiting abortion across the country under that equal protection clause, uh, you know, to vindicate the equal protection clause under that enforcement power. Obviously, we recognize right now in Congress with pro-abortion President Joe Biden uh, that that's not likely to become law. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are other approaches that Congress can actually take as well. Right. Congress has the taxing power. Uh, we've seen from you know the National Firearms Act that uh, effectively prohibits automatic firearms through a taxing mechanism. Uh, we've seen through the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate, a tax was what uh, forced every American to buy health insurance uh, for a while until it was struck down mm -hmm. uh, or removed, I guess, by Congress. Um, 
we could do something similar where like we a could two million dollar sales tax excise on getting an abortion. Well, you could you could tax <laughs> yeah. abortion providers and pill manufacturers, uh, you know, thousands of dollars mm -hmm. for each abortion performed or or or. Uh, pill prescribed. That would be something that you could do with 51 votes in the Senate and in, in, you know put in must pass uh budget legislation. You yeah. don't need to get cloture for that. Yeah. So I think that you know we can be creative in the way that we approach this and push it. Uh, obviously that's not an acceptable long-term solution, right? To just tax abortion. Uh but right now that's something we could do and put in must pass legislation as one step toward ensuring equal protection. So it's it looks like, you know, obviously the the north star is 14th Amendment acknowledged as protecting all human life, full stop, period. But we're entering much like the, it feels like maybe the early 2000s, a period where creativity legislatively is going to be the name of the game. What are some other opportunities? I mean, it looks like many states have already passed their, their they've had trigger laws on the books. It's it's just done. There's a lot, like, is it about 15 states where, yeah. where abortion is just done now? What else can those legislators do? Obviously, you know, there's an entire separate set of conversations to be had on um, changing the contours of our political economic priorities in order to better um, support families. But putting that aside, just on the narrow question of making sure there are as few abortions as possible, what is uh, what is a state that's already banned it to do? Yeah. Well, I think one thing states can start by doing is introducing civil penalties for companies that do business and are taxed in their state. Uh, who pay their employees to travel for abortions? So a lot mm. of big companies have said that they'll reimburse travel expenses if you if you live in a state where abortion is prohibited. Well, states that prohibit abortion should impose civil penalties on businesses that do that uh, to make it unprofitable and make them rescind those policies. I think uh, that's something that states can do. Uh, I think you know family policy type stuff that you've just uh, just mentioned. I think is also important. Uh, you know, building a community. You know, something that you know our new right listeners will appreciate is that like a family policy approach that makes it uh, a welcoming. You know, we we use the state to both punish evil and promote good. And one of the ways we can punish evil is stopping abortion. One of the ways we can promote good is creating an environment where families are able to. Uh, have children and are you know welcomed into the community, and so you know there's been proposals. American Compass has a great proposal on expanding uh, child tax credit and providing direct payments uh, to families beginning w in pregnancy and all the way through 18. And I think that's a great proposal as well. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do, uh, both on the state and federal level, and a lot of creativity, as you said. Yeah. So you brought up. Uh a lot of these companies that are paying the travel for their employees to to go and get abortions, why are they doing that? I think part of it is to signal, uh, right? They have no, they, they're signaling to a progressive base and they have no incentives, um, you know, no stick, I guess, from the right to punish them for doing so. Uh, I think part of it, it's not all of it, certainly, but part of it is it's easier to pay someone to travel to get an abortion than it is to pay for like, maternity leave or family leave <laughs> uh, and pay actually, you know, actually support them having a family. It's interesting that you see lots of people right now uh, saying, you know, blaming pro-lifers and saying like, you know, unless you foster all the kids and, and pay all the money, uh, you know, you can't oppose abortion. And yet these same people are fundraising for abortion funds and they're not putting any money toward, you know, reforming foster care or promoting a, a culture of life where families feel welcomed to bring children into the world. And so it's very duplicitous on their side. Uh, but I think it is easy. It's easy for them to, uh, you know, pay for an abortion rather than to actually provide, you know, support for people who do choose life. What do you think the trickery is going to be here coming forward? I know that I've already started to see a version of what had in really dark places started to be the case on the trans issue, which is entire black markets for pills to be you know shipped across the country. Um, how do you think there's going to be efforts to undermine this decision and the states that have decided to ban outright. Yeah, that's that's certainly one of them that you've put your finger on. And states have a role to like help stop, prevent and prevent uh, the importation of abortion uh, pills and devices into their jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. There's actually a federal level uh, statute as well that prohibits through the mails uh, you know, sending abortifacient drugs through the mails that's been on the books for a long time and it hasn't been enforced, right, since Roe. Uh, now that Roe and Casey are gone, there's a real question about whether that's even legal to send these abortion drugs through the mail. And so if we can revitalize those Comstock acts that prohibit sending abortion 
inducing drugs and devices yeah, through the no, mail. No, no one tell the Biden administration. <laughs> <laughs> Just let that sit there until we get a Republican Congress and then hopefully, yeah. Yeah, or or I don't know, maybe there's a way to use it. I haven't looked into it, but maybe there's a way to use it to to fight the FDA to sue them. Yeah. Uh, for cuz they're, you know, pushing this under the Biden administration. Yeah. What else what are, what are some of the other ways you think states are going to or you know, people are going to try to undermine this law? I mean, Here's the thing. People are always going to try to undermine laws. You know, the one thing, you know, pro, pro abortion activists always say is like, well, just banning abortion isn't going to stop abortion. Well, that's true. Like laws against rape don't stop all rape. Right. Laws against murder don't stop all murder. We still have a high murder rate. But that's not an argument against like criminalizing those things. That's an argument against law itself. So we have to have these laws as a teacher to teach people what is wrong and what is right. Mm -hmm. And that does guide behavior. And so having the law in the first place is a huge factor and then enforcing it. So I think that, you know, we've talked about a lot of different legislative solutions. There's more creative people out there who are working on additional proposals mm -hmm. too. Uh, but I think that those are some of the ways that we can begin to, to fight this and for fight for a culture of life. Enforcement is a, is an interesting aspect of this um, because as um, we've seen over the last few years, one of the new avenues of attack that the left is using on, on the legal system in general is basically weaponizing prosecutorial discretion to make cities anarchic places that are miserable to live in. George Gascon um, uh, is one example. Uh, there was the guy who lost, and I've already forgotten his yeah. name, um, in, in in San Francisco. Chesa Budin. Chesa Budin, that's right. Uh, no, I don't even know who you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Son of weather underground terrorists. You have a guy up in Philly. Um, you know, they're very clearly willing to use asymmetric tactics on the enforcement yeah. side. Um, obviously, you know, Texas passed a, a very interesting law um, using civil penalties in order to, you know, create essentially uh, a bureaucratic army of trial lawyers for us to use to yes. go after abortionists. What, 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 what do you have your eyes on on the enforcement side of things with these laws? So I think that the pride of right of action that you've put your finger on is a really important aspect of enforcement. And so we have this SBA in Texas is a great example of deputizing the public to help enforce a public policy of life. Uh, but it actually happens all the time in other contexts as well. There's credit reporting, uh, consumer safety. Like California has tons of these laws that have private rights of action uh, that have never been controversial. And so I think introducing, you know, deputizing in, in the sense, uh, allowing people to bring suits to help enforce the law is really important. And that also helps uh, prevent the sort of situations that you're talking about where, uh, you know, Soros funded DAs aren't willing to bring cases. It supplements that enforcement to help, you know, bring in, you know, actually robust policy that can be enforced. So I think it's a really important aspect of it. Mm -hmm. What do you think the, the stepwise process with the courts going to look like over the next 10 to 15 years? What, what are the next five abortion cases probably mm. going to be in terms of just titrating up to to the, the big win, which is 14th Amendment? I think Justice Kavanaugh would like to have no more abortion cases <laughs> at the court. I think that was the point of his concurrence. It's like, go away. Please never yeah, please again. Please never again. But that's not going to happen. Yeah. Let's be real. It's not going to go away. These cases are going to continue to be litigated and they're going to go through the courts. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, I wouldn't have given very much chance at all that the court would overturn Roe and Casey. In 2017, things looked very bleak. I think it's hard to tell what it's going to look like in another five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, in 2017, we certainly didn't have a majority to overturn Roe and Casey. In 2027, 2030, who knows what the court will look like to, you know, on terms of the 14th Amendment argument. We might have one, two, maybe more new justices by then. Uh, so I think that as we move forward, I think we're going we're gonna to continue pushing the 14th Amendment argument. Cases that are going to come up before then include like right to travel cases, uh, cases involving, you know, civil penalties for companies that are paying for abortion. Uh, we're going to see abortion funding issues. We're going to see if Congress ever gets any legislation passed on the abortion issue. I'm sure that'll end up in court. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of ways that this, you know, Biden administration wants to pass uh, and issue a lot of executive orders surrounding abortion and like whether agencies have authority to help promulgate, you know, help distribute abortion drugs or like do abortions on military bases and crazy stuff like that. You know, these are cases that are going to continue to pop up. And so I think it's very unlikely that Justice Kavanaugh's desire for the court to just get rid of the abortion issue and send it back to the states and please never come back. That's not going to happen. So you bring up uh, Congress and I've, I've, I've seen a lot of 
very prominent Republicans belly aching about uh, what this is going to do to their election <laughs> prospects. Um, a lot of people are very worried that taking a stand for life is going to lose them, you know, women, suburban voters. Um, put very bluntly, do you think Republicans have the guts to actually do something in Congress on this issue? Uh, I'm an eternal pe pessimist, so no. Uh, <laughs> but I think that that's our job is to keep their feet to the fire to make them do something about this issue. Mm. For the last 50 years, Republicans have been campaigning on, you know, I'm a pro-life uh, elected candidate. Oh, but the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, Casey, I just can't, you know, they, I, I can't do anything about it. And so they've had this excuse. Well, now they can do something about it. You've said you're pro-life. Now do something about it. Mm. And so we've got concrete legislative proposals for them to to pass, including a 14th Amendment, you know, abolish abortion, but also lots of other options. You know, mm. the tax we discussed, stopping uh, these, you know, tax deductions, mm -hmm. companies uh, who want to deduct these expenses as ordinary and necessary business expenses, mm -hmm. stopping that. You know, we, there, we expect action after 50 years of claiming to be pro-life and getting elected on the backs of pro-life voters who have you know, given their lives, knocking on doors, uh, giving money to their local pregnancy center, to their local candidates to try and get pro-life representatives elected. They owe it to their constituencies to actually act and do something. I think that's exactly right. Um, but um, obviously, uh, you know, relying on Republican elected officials to be <laughs> bold uh, and principled people is always tough. Uh, what As I you... said, I'm an eternal pessimist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so let's go to a, a set of people I'm much more optimistic about. Um, what's the ground level patriot, ordinary person, and individual to do in these new and exciting times? Yeah. Well, it depends on where you live, but I think every every person and every pro life person in every state can start by you know donating to your local crisis pregnancy center and then also get involved to try and help push pro-life legislation in your state. So in some states, you've already prohibited abortion, So there, but there's more to be done, right, mm -hmm. as we've discussed. Uh, in states that haven't prohibited abortion, where it's unsettled, there's a lot of states where abortion law is going to be unsettled after Roe v. Wade. Uh, I think you, you need to get involved to help get better legislation on the books in your state. Uh, you know, get involved with your local pro-life group, try and push for really pro-life legislation there. Uh, push this 14th Amendment argument. You know, explain it to your state legislators. Mm -hmm. Explain their obligation to help ensure equal protection. And so I think that everyone needs to get involved. They need to, uh, you know, start volunteering and start helping out. 2025, maybe there's going to be a contested uh, Republican nomination for president. Maybe not. Um, and for what it's worth, would welcome the same debate on the Democratic side, although I doubt it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> What's what's the the strong pro-life litmus test that you'd like? What's the conversation you'd like to see on the debate stage mm. for what the terms of the discussion that the candidates are yes. having is? I think the litmus test is whether unborn children are entitled to the equal protection of the laws. If you don't believe that unborn children have constitutional protection, uh, I think that's going to be a huge red flag and you don't deserve to be president. Well... I know that there's at least some people who listen to this podcast who are working for many of the candidates who will likely be pining to run. Uh, so that's the challenge to them. Josh, where can people follow everything you're doing? What should they be keeping an eye out sure. from you uh, in the coming weeks and months? Yeah, you can go to my website, uh, joshcraddock.com. Usually has the latest commentary that I've written. Uh, you can also keep up with me on, on Twitter, uh, Josh J. Craddock. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's probably the best way to, to keep up with what's going on and what I'm writing, uh, typically on the 14th Amendment. Wonderful, Josh. Well, thank you for uh, immediately rushing to our uh, studio right after you got off the plane. You've got plenty to do over your next few days here in D.C., but but thank you for, for your leadership on all of this. Uh, it's an exciting time, uh, and your work is just getting started. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.